Amen. You may have a seat. And as you have your seat, why don't you grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to the Gospel of Luke. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. You obviously are here. You're singing these songs with us. But how do you know all this is true? How often do you think about answering that question? Is this all true? All these things that I'm singing this Christmas that we'll be celebrating? You see, in our postmodern world, even asking that question has become irrelevant because everything is seen as relativistic, defined by the individual. You've heard many people say things like this, well, my truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. But that can't be the truth, because what happens when those truths contradict one another? You see, the main tenet of postmodern philosophy is that there is no such thing as absolute truth. But that itself is a self-defeating statement to say that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And so what we realize is truth, it can't merely be personal. You have a world filled with this subjective truth and you have a chaotic world. We know this is true, even in the physical realm. When we think about the laws of nature, you can Believe all of you want. You can be sincere with your faith. But if you walk off of a 20-story building, that sincere faith can't counteract gravity. There is truth in nature. And just as truth and absolutes are vital for our understanding in the physical realm, how much more so in the spiritual realm? But if you make any type of religious arguments... If you say that Christianity is true, if you make any type of truth claim, then you'll be viewed as arrogant. How could you? How dare you? Who do you think you are to say one religion is right and the other is wrong? And so religion is left to what you feel in your heart. And we're back to, well, if it's good for you, if it's right for you, then it's right for you. But don't judge me. Don't tell me what is true and right. And I just want to say this, that Christianity is fundamentally opposed to that kind of philosophy. Christianity has everything to do with the heart, but it's not just the heart. Christianity expects us, demands of us to use our minds and our reason and our logic. We don't check our brains at the door when we come to Christ. All the emotional aspects of the Christian faith must be, listen to this, firmly grounded in the historical and doctrinal truths of the faith that are revealed to us in the Scripture. And so whether you're a Christian here this morning or you're a non-Christian, it's essential that you know that the Christian faith is rooted in objective, historical reality. This truth that we have is absolute truth. It is unchanging truth. It is the historical reality of who Jesus is, what he said, and what he did. And this truth is the most important truth in all of the world. 
And it needs to be embraced by each and every one of us. So even though we live in a day of relativism, people want to ignore absolutes, we need more now than ever the certainty of our Christian faith. There's nothing more important for you to be clear in your own mind, in your own heart, about what you believe and why you believe what you believe. And as we turn back to the Gospel of Luke and we look at his prologue, these first four verses this morning, we're going to get a sense that Luke has an objective. And his objective at the beginning of his Gospel is to provide the kind of certainty that gives you assurance that you're not crazy, that what you actually believe is grounded in historical reality. So would you follow along as I read here, Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Here's God's word for us. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. Would you please join me as we ask the Lord to bless the proclamation of his word. Father, apart from your spirit working in and through our hearts, these words will fall on deaf ears and they'll come out of a dumb mouth. And so we pray for your enlightenment. We pray for clarity of heart and mind to help us see Jesus. Oh, Lord, would you give us more of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Here's our main idea for this morning, if you're taking notes. Since Luke's gospel is an objective, accurate, orderly, historically true account of the life and ministry of Jesus, we can believe it with confidence. Let me say that again. Since Luke's gospel is an objective, accurate, orderly, historically true account of the life and ministry of Jesus, we can believe it with confidence. And that, I would suggest, is the reason why Luke wrote his gospel. And we're going to move through these first four verses by following a simple outline, just three major headings. First, we're going to look at the sources of Luke's gospel in verses 1 through 2. Then we'll look at the systematic approach of Luke's gospel there in verse 3. And then we'll finish with the significance of his gospel. The sources, the systematic approach, and the significance. Now, the prologue to Luke is very unique. What I mean is that there is nothing like it in the New Testament. It is one long Greek sentence, and Paul has lots of long Greek sentences, but this is probably the best styled sentence in the New Testament. It's not just the style that's impressive, but it's the substance. You say, what do you mean the substance? Well, Luke gives us here both his method and motive for writing in these first four verses. The physician now turned historian, what he does in these first four verses, he provides us with the what, why, and the how. What is the gospel all about? Why he wanted to write it? And then how he went about the process of writing it. So let's look here at the sources of Luke's gospel, starting there in verse one. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things 
that have been fulfilled among us. Right from the get-go, Luke hits us with this Greek word that's totally unique to him. Since indeed, or considering that, what he wants us to understand is that he's beginning this journey, and he's not the first one to do this kind of research and reporting. He's providing for us a reason why he's writing yet another account of Jesus' life when there were already several in existence. Now, some, when they read this, they've criticized and said, well, I think Luke is probably unhappy with the works that came before him. And I don't think you have to jump to that conclusion. I think he's just saying, I want to write a more complete and accurate account of what we already have. Well, what did the other writers and witnesses set out to demonstrate as they wrote their accounts and as they passed on their information? I would say in some respects, I'm sure that many are just sharing what they've experienced in Jesus. You imagine that. You meet someone famous and you tell people about it, what that experience was like. Imagine meeting Jesus Christ, witnessing his miracles, sitting under his teaching. I'm sure people were just excited to pass on that information. But Luke says here in verse 1 that many have compiled an account of the things that have been, look at that, fulfilled among us. You see, the story of God's redemption in Jesus begins with the focus of what God has accomplished among us. All that came to pass, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. He is the realization of all of the Old Testament prophecies. Thousands and thousands of years of hoping and longing for the Messiah to come, and here he is. And he has fulfilled every jot and tittle. You remember when Jesus rose from the dead, he had a conversation with a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, the end of the book. Just want you to see with your own eyes, starting in verse 25 of chapter 24, the realization and fulfillment It says there in verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Skip down to verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see, it's likely that Luke actually chased down one of these two disciples and got this account from one of them. As they recounted how Jesus declared that all the divine promises in the Old Testament were fulfilled in him. And you remember what they said, were not our hearts burning inside of us as he opened up the scriptures. That's a big statement. 
How can we trust that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament scriptures? How can we trust these two disciples or what Luke said about Christ being the fulfillment of all these things? Let me see if I can explain it this way. I've just finished with my seminary education and I am no longer having to write research papers, which I'm very thankful for. One of the things they teach you about writing research papers is that your research is only as reliable as your resources. In other words, they just don't want to hear all that you have to say. They want to know what kind of research did you did to substantiate what you are saying. Well, Luke here, he's not making up a story about Jesus. This isn't his coming just from his mind. No, Luke is doing the work, the hard work. You think about other religions, some who have some sort of hypnotic, psychedelic experience off in the wilderness. You get some golden tablets from an angel, Moroni, full of contradictions. Well, that's not what's happening here with Luke. No, Luke extensively, exhaustively, carefully goes and does all the research he can about the person and work of Jesus. And so Luke stresses the, the quantity and the quality of his source information. And we see that there in verse 1. Look down at the text. It says, many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. See, there are many, Luke says, written sources. And we don't know how many sources there were, but we do know that at least he had one or two of the other Gospels. Now, just a reminder that there are four Gospels that are considered inspired by God, authoritative, and they're included in the New Testament canon. And you know that the reason why we have four Gospels was to present the life and the work, the ministry of Jesus, so that all people everywhere of all time would believe and trust him by faith. Now, three of those Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them what? The Synoptic Gospels, because they're seen together. They've got a common view, a similar pattern, but they add supplemental material to, to reach their own specific goal and end. The Gospel of Mark was probably written first, maybe around 60 AD or before 60 AD. And we say that Mark got his information from the Apostle Peter. In fact, the early church father, Papias, said this. He said, Mark, who was Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately, though not in order, all that he recollected of what Christ had done and said. And when you read Mark's gospel, it's full of action and vivid description because Mark is writing to the Romans to convert the Romans, and they don't care about all the details, just what happened. Just, just tell me like it is. And so that's how Mark's gospel flows. The gospel of Matthew was written probably seconds and before A.D. 70. Remember, the Romans destroyed the temple in A.D. 70, which helps us to date Matthew. But when we look at Matthew's gospel, Matthew wrote to try to convince the Jews that Jesus was their Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and scriptures and types. Then when you get to the gospel of John, John compliments the other three by emphasizing Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem and Judea, and he places a lot more emphasis than the others do on discourses of Jesus. John probably wrote about A.D. 85, 
And he died in AD 100, the longest living apostle. But let me just point this out to you. Turn with me in the Gospel of John to John chapter 20. Because what John does is he gives us the aim of his writing. And look there at verse 30 in John chapter 20. The Apostle John writes this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And then he says, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, Luke, as I mentioned, definitely had access to Mark. And if you didn't have access to his writing, when you read the book of Acts, whenever Luke is mentioned, Mark is there. So these brothers are probably sitting down and sharing stories and maybe even compiling some of their information together. He may have also had Matthew with him, but it says here that he had additional sources. You say, how do we know that? Well, I don't think it would have said many others have compiled if he was only talking about Matthew and Mark. There must have been other accounts. And some have tried to say that what Luke went after was the Gnostic Gospels. Have you heard of these? The, the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospels that uh, conservative scholars call pseudepigrapha, meaning that there's a claimed author, but it's not really the author. And we know this by the dating and the content, but you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas, and then there's the Gospel of Philip, and then there's the Gospel of Barnabas. There's even a Gospel of Judas Iscariot, which I don't want to read that one. But you have all these other Gospels that are false Gospels. They contain contradictions. And in the early church, they were the reason why a lot of heresy broke out. Luke is not referencing these source materials. See, he's not only interested in the quantity, but the quality of sources. And that's what he says here in verse 2. Look there at the text. Just as those, Luke says, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, handed them down to us. You see, Luke is interested in hearing firsthand information. That word there, eyewitnesses, autopates. It means to see with one's own eyes. It's actually where we get the word autopsy. Someone who has seen something with their own two eyes. Now, Jesus' disciples would certainly fit the bill of those who saw his life and ministry with their own two eyes. And when we read about Matthew and Mark's account, we know that the only way they got that information was from the apostles. You see, Luke, again, is not interested in hearsay. He's not interested in rumors and speculation. No, he wanted eyewitness testimony. And what better testimony than the people that were there with Jesus? First John chapter 1 and verse 1 says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. 
what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things were written so that our joy may be made complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and now declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's the disciple whom Jesus loved giving eyewitness testimony. Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. I want to just show you the importance of eyewitness testimony. 1 Peter chapter 5. Simon Peter writes this in chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Not only that, but he says he is a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Flip on over from 1 Peter to 2 Peter and look there at chapter 1 and verse 16. Peter says there, For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says, following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we, for when he had received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as it was made to him by the majestic glory that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And listen, in addition to Peter, James, and John, the inner three, getting this amazing eyewitness testimony, there's also Jesus' family. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, we read this, All these with one accord were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Look, if you want to disprove Christianity early on, all you had to do was go to his family who once didn't believe, who once thought he was crazy, who thought he was out of his mind. And yet something dramatic happens after the resurrection where their lives are transformed and they're willing to even lay down their lives for their brother. But you just question them. Was he really perfect? I've never seen him sin. But the eyewitnesses didn't stop with the inner circle of disciples. It didn't stop with his family. No, there were actually hundreds, hundreds of witnesses. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You remember what the Apostle Paul said regarding the resurrection? Chapter 15 and verse 3. Paul writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And look at what he includes here. Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul says, look, you don't have to believe me. Just go check with everyone else because they are all witnesses of the resurrection. And all of these eyewitnesses became what Luke says here, ministers of the word. That that Greek word here used in medical terminology, it just means an intern or an understudy. It's one who came under another 
All the men and women become eyewitnesses and they become mouthpieces to the veracity of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 24. You remember again, after Jesus's resurrection, he actually showed the scars. Go right ahead, Thomas. You don't believe. You need to see to believe. Go ahead and touch me. He's actually having a meal. So they, they, they know for certain this isn't some sort of ghost. But look at what he says in verse 48. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And we see Luke detail this in the book of Acts. They're carrying out exactly what Jesus told them to do, that they were both commissioned and privileged with this opportunity to proclaim that Christ is who he said he is, that he did, in fact, raise from the dead, that he is the only hope for mankind. They are bearing witness to what they heard. Now, you say, how specifically are they servants of the word? It's the same as us today. All of us who are not eyewitnesses, but we have bowed the knee to King Jesus, all of us, are commissions to preserve the word, to pass down the word, and to faithfully proclaim the word of salvation in Christ. Look now at Acts chapter 1 and verse 21. As the disciples here, they have to replace Judas. I just want you to see what they're commissioned with. It says there in verse 21, Therefore, it was necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went out from among us, beginning with the baptism of John until now, until this day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Turn on over to Acts 6.4. You remember the selection of the deacons? where there's a dispute that breaks out. The apostles are trying to figure out how they can commit themselves to the devotion to prayer and the word. They says right there in 6.4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. This here is their main task. They were to devote themselves to both prayer and the study and the proclamation of all this truth. Then in Acts 13.31 Paul refers to the 12 apostles after they experienced the resurrection like this. He says this in verse 31, And for many days he appeared to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses to the people. And then finally, one more if you want to turn there, Acts 26. Paul is describing how Paul or how Christ has commissioned him to be a part of the apostolic band. And Christ says, in verse 16 of chapter 26, to Paul, but rise up, stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a servant and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. And so listen, the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word with whom Luke could confirm his work were the chosen and appointed instruments that Christ sent to proclaim the message about who he is. And the question for you this morning, as we think about them and their task, 
is, do you believe this? Do you believe this eyewitness testimony? Are you persuaded by these accounts of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? You know, there are two ways that we actually believe something is true. We say things like, well, I need to see it to what? Believe it. Well, what if you don't see it? Well, in that case, do I believe what people are telling me about what they saw and what they experienced? In other words, are there credible witnesses that gain and garner my belief? See, Luke, he was not an eyewitness. Theophilus is not an eyewitness. You were not an eyewitness, and yet you're here this Sunday morning. Why? Why would you believe something that you have not seen? Why would you believe something that you have not touched? Why would you believe something that you have not heard? The question to you is, have you been duped? Are you accepting this by blind faith? There are too many people that say things like that. Well, I don't know if it's true, but it's kind of like my best guess. Now, Paul says, look, if Christ did not raise from the dead, you are the worst to be pitied. Listen, are you believing all of these things without being persuasive of reliable evidence? I don't think so. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, where it says they received the word with great eagerness and they were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Listen, the Lord Jesus doesn't want us to take some blind leap of faith. Look at what Luke says about Jesus after he rose from the dead. Look at verse three. It says, he also presented himself alive after the sufferings by many convincing proofs appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. According to Luke, Christ was very concerned to give proofs, to give adequate evidence. If that wasn't the case, listen, he wouldn't have shown himself to over 500 people for a period of 40 days. No, he wants to ensure that there is adequate evidence. See, faith for Luke is a personal acceptance and a readiness to act upon what one is persuaded to be true. Listen, it is the Spirit of God that opens our hearts, right? There's no amount of logic or reason apart from the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God uses those things to convince us. We don't believe in far-fetched fantasies. This, brothers and sisters, is reality. The Word of God is persuasive and powerful. There were so many people that thought I was crazy because I was living one way and I was chasing after the world and I wanted my own pleasure and living for myself and then something changed and it was a complete transformation. Yes, sir. You, Dom, you must be crazy. No, no, no. I am convinced. I read the word and it made sense to me. No human being can make up this truth. No human being can connect all the dots. No story over thousands and thousands of years has the kind of unison and power to change my life the way that the gospel has. Listen, this is reliable. It is trustworthy. 
And Luke is very concerned that Theophilus understand both the quantity of the sources and the highest quality. Now here in verse 3, we have several key terms that describe Luke's research method. This was a systematic and orderly presentation. And he provides us with two important facts. First, he says, this, he investigated everything carefully from the beginning. And he says he wrote it out in orderly sequence. So point number two, the systematic approach to his gospel. That word there, investigated, just means to follow. Metaphorically, what he's saying here is, I chased down all the details. I made extensive effort to learn the truth and to report on it. So he's saying, I'm not just telling the story of Jesus. He's saying, I'm telling the true story of Jesus. And in order to do that, he could not be careless in his investigation. Jesus himself said in John 18, when the high priests were questioning him about his disciples and his teaching, Jesus responded to the high priest and said this in verse 20 of chapter 18, I have spoken openly. And I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews came together. I spoke nothing in secret. So why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, they know what I said. Can you imagine? Jesus is putting it on other people. If you really want to know, go and ask them. That's exactly what Luke did. He went out and questioned all those who heard Jesus teach, both publicly and privately. And listen, there were probably thousands of people, thousands of people who heard and witnessed Jesus' works and words. Now, in order to compile and collaborate all these stories, he would have had to sit down and talk to a lot of people. And when we read the account of Acts, this is exactly what he did. He's with Paul. He's learning from Paul. He's with Mark. He's learning from the apostles. He's talking to people. He has years to compile this information. And he wants to know, did a virgin really give birth? I need to sit down and talk to Mary. How else do you think he got the account? Did he really turn water into wine? I'm sure there were people at that party like, that's the best wine I ever had. Jesus did that. Did he walk on water? Did he calm the storm with his voice? Did he, did he take a little boy's little lunch pail and then multiply it for thousands and thousands of people? Did he cast out demons? Did he really heal people? Did he give sight to the blind? Did he heal paralytics? Did he really claim to be God? Did he really fulfill the Old Testament scriptures? Did he really think he was the Messiah? Did he really prophesy about his death? Did he really prophesy about the destruction of the temple? Did he really come back from the dead? You know, I saw that movie, Prestige. Have you ever seen that movie? There's a twin brother, and they pull the biggest, like, dupe. And I think about all these stories that are told to try to negate the resurrection, from the disciples stilling to the body, to the Muslims saying that he really didn't die on the cross. But over 500 witnesses see the scars. They see him ascend. If you want to disprove this, this gets nowhere. It does not get off the ground if people say that was not true. And then to have all the apostles willing to lay down their life for a lie, 
a hoax? So the question comes back, are you crazy for believing this? Or is there good, reliable, verifiable evidence to the contrary? Christianity is not about blind faith. I am a Christian because of God's grace convincing me that all that Jesus said was true. And it is terribly arrogant to think that Luke and Theophilus and all of these disciples were a bunch of ignorant fishermen, physicians who didn't know any better. I don't think any of them were predisposed to believing something without verifiable evidence. No one is going to lay down their life in this way for a guy that they knew was dead. See, we live in a time where there's fake news all around us, all these videos that are going viral that only tell part of the story. But Luke is not pumping out TMZ kind of fake news. He is careful. He is methodical. He's not embellishing. He's not revising. Everything he is saying is very, very carefully crafted. And that's what that word means. It's conforming to a standard He makes a thorough inquiry because he wants exact details. And the question is, how far does he go back? It says right here, look at the text, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. I just take that to mean that it goes all the way back to the announcement of the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. And he does this in orderly sequence. That's not to say that it is all chronological. The NASB translates this consecutive order. But we know that he didn't have to stick to a rigid, strict, consecutive order. But there is order. It's systematic. It's logical. It's a readable structure. And we talked about this last week, that there's a geographical order. So chapters 1 through 9 are around Galilee, his hometown in Nazareth, and the headquarters of Capernaum. Chapters 9 through 19, he's moving and traveling to Jerusalem. And chapters 19 through 24 take place in Jerusalem. And in the weeks ahead, we'll see that there's a theological order to all of Luke's gospel. But all of this, listen, it's orderly, it's careful, it's an investigation that's painstaking, and all of this to research at the behest of this guy, Theophilus. And just real quickly, who is Theophilus? Because this is the only time we see him in the book of Acts. Some say he's a wealthy man who actually owned Luke as a slave, or it was his doctor or maybe a combination of both. Others suggest that Theophilus was a God-fearer. When you look at his name, Theo, Theos is God. Phileo, which is the Greek verb for one of the verbs for love. It is a lover of God or the one that God loves. Some people think that Theophilus is a representation of people who were Christians. Still others suggest that uh, he was being protected and so his name wasn't used. But I'm convinced Theophilus is a real dude, which is amazing because Luke writes his gospel for one guy, and he writes Acts for one guy, and a third of our New Testament is given to just one guy. Now, obviously, it's for everybody, but just think about the love and care and concern that God has for each individual like you and me. But he writes here to Theophilus. And I believe Theophilus is a man. And the reason why I think that is because of this title. It says there, Most Excellent Theophilus. And we know that that is only used three other times of Most Excellent Felix and Most Excellent Festus. 
So it's a good indication that he is a guy. He's probably a high-ranking Roman official. Remember when Paul wrote in Philippians that even some in Caesar's household have had the gospel reach them. Well, Theophilus may have been one of those guys. And if he isn't, then at the very, very least, he's a guy of nobility, a guy of wealth. He was probably Luke's literary patron who commissioned him to do the research and do all the reporting. And again, just think with me for one quick second that a third of our New Testament was written by a Gentile for Gentiles like you and me. And lest we forget that there's giant implications for that very truth. Because as a high-ranking Roman official who was converted to Christianity, Theophilus had everything to lose. Who's Lord during Theophilus' day? Caesar. Caesar is Lord. But now Theophilus is saying, "Mm -mm, Jesus is Lord. Which means that Theophilus could have lost his job, his prestige, his prominence, his family. He could have lost his head for bowing down to Jesus. And the question he had to ask is this. Same question you and I have to ask. Is it worth it? Is Jesus and all of this eyewitness testimony, is it worth it? Is he truly the Messiah? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Son of Man? Is he the Savior of the world? Is he worthy of my submission and obedience? And just lastly, our last point, the significance of the gospel. It's there in verse 4. So that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. You see, Luke says, I don't want you just to have a knowledge, an intellectual assent to all this. I want you to have an experiential, a full, a complete knowledge. Not just a cursory knowledge, but a full knowledge. And certainty is what Luke is after. So again, let me ask you this question. Do you have this certainty? Do you have this confidence? You know, when we bring on members, everything... Um, that we're we're trying to accomplish is gospel-centered, gospel-related. So every member that comes on must, has to communicate the gospel to us. And we usually say, do it under a minute. Put a little pressure on you, because if there's one thing that you should know, it's not your ABCs, it's not the Pledge of Allegiance. You, as a Christian, should know the gospel. You should be able to articulate and communicate a compelling argument for why Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Listen, J.C. Philpott wrote this. He said, right views concerning Christ are indispensable to a right faith. And a right faith is indispensable to salvation. He says, to stumble at the foundation is, concerning faith, to make shipwreck altogether. As for Emmanuel, God with us, It is the ground object of faith to err in the view of his eternal deity or to err in views of his sacred humanity is alike destructive. Listen, church, we need to know with absolute certainty who Jesus is, what he did, and what he said. Luke wanted Theophilus and all of us who are reading his account 
to be assured that this is the greatest story ever told, that this is a true story based on historical, grounded historical facts. What we hold in our hand with Luke's gospel is an accurate account of the actual events of the Savior of the world. And therefore, listen, we can have assurance that what we're reading is it's far from legend. It's far from myth. No, this is the greatest news in all the world. Would you please join me as we pray? Oh, Father, what great confidence we have in your word. Your word has undoubtedly stood the test of time. Your word has withstood the greatest scrutiny from atheists, from agnostics, from other religions that have tried to devalue these words on our sacred book. But Lord, we attest to the fact that these things are true. Father, we're thankful that you have preserved your word for us, and we're thankful that so many people have transmitted it down the ages, stories that were told, manuscripts that were written, people who were willing to risk their lives to put it into the common language. And so, Father, we have a rich, rich heritage people of every nation, tribe, and tongue who went before us, who lived for Christ, died for Christ. So, Father, with these great cloud of witnesses, would you please help us to take our Christianity seriously, to not trifle with the truth, but to be adamant about teaching it, proclaiming it, passing it down to the next generation, of not being so concerned about ourselves and what people think of us, but to have the heart of Christ, to be concerned for souls, and to proclaim this truth with boldness and courage, knowing that the gospel is powerful to save. And we're thankful that we could partake now of another baptism story and see how you've worked in our sister Veronica's life to bring about faith, repentance, and commitment to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.